Good morning, everybody. It's great to be back with you all this morning and uh, to be behind the pulpit again. It's an honor and a blessing. We have two principles in martial arts, and those in here that are, are my students uh, will, will appreciate this. And one of them's called a, a state of awareness or a ready mind. We say zanshin in Japanese. And then there's a state of no mind where you just empty it all out and are at peace. And that's a state of mushin. And an unfortunate soul recently in a church out in California found out what each of these meant. I had the great privilege of sharing with a youth and college group at a church in California I guess it was a couple weeks ago. I've lost all track of time. And it got shared with some of these youth that I was a martial arts instructor. Now, that's not what I was talking about that night. That's not what we got into. God gave me an opportunity to challenge these young folks and speak from the Word of God. But it got out that I was a martial arts instructor. And so some of these young people, completely setting aside what we had just talked about, the serious things we had just talked about, suddenly wanted to see if I was legit. And so with their phones out, a couple of them started to say, you know, let me attack you and just kind of challenge me. And my response was, I don't really want to do this in God's house. Well, one man, one young man, he was in his early 20s, was especially boisterous. Now I'm going to attack you. We want to see if you're for real. And it was such that Eric was actually a little bit aggravated by what he called a show of disrespect. And so in that moment, I stayed aware, but I also emptied from my mind any distraction because I didn't know what this kid was going to do. Sure enough, he attacked me. He tried to punch me in the face. And he ended up with his face in the pew. And I asked him, are you finished yet? And it was quite comical. Now, this young man was a good sport about it. He was shocked. But from a state of awareness to a state of complete relaxation, somebody went to the ground. Oftentimes, while being aware of what's going on around us, we're terribly distracted so that when the enemy comes, we're not able to see it or we're not able to respond to it. Sometimes we need to just get all that out. We want to get all that out, a state of no mind. I'm not talking about meditating on objects or idols or any of that garbage that comes out of the Eastern world, but just empty it out. And when we do that, we can be ready, not only for what God wants to teach us, but when the enemy comes. And so I want you to try to just divorce your mind right now from all distractions. I want you to put COVID-19 out of your mind. I want you to put Joe Biden, the usurper, out of your mind. I want you to put this wicked country out of your mind for a moment. I want you to put the face diapers and the social distancing and Governor Roy Cooper. Put all that out of your mind. I want you to empty your mind. A state of no mind. The last time we were here... I finished up Revelation chapter 20 and the picture that was painted for you was a most ghastly image. A most ghastly image. I want you to put that out of your mind. Still yourselves. Close your eyes. 
This is not some weird exercise. But I want you to still your mind and empty it, and I want you to hear, I want you to hear what God's Word has to say this morning. I don't want you to hear anything else. So I'm going to give you about five seconds to clear your mind because I want you to hear one thing. I painted a most ghastly picture. We go from a horribly ghastly image at the end of Revelation 20, that great white throne. But now we have a most glorious portrait. And I just want to read a few verses this morning. I want you to hear this word and I want you to rest in it. Forget about all this other noise. And rest in it. One, two, three, four, five. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Right, for these words are true. Faithful. Let that sink in for a moment. Quiet. Let it sink in. Just meditate upon what you just heard. What a glorious portrait. This glorious portrait has been there for all of church history. And it's been a great source of peace for believers in horrible circumstances. Far beyond anything we could even comprehend or imagine. Believers at the throes of death. Believers suffering torture. Believers cold and sick in the dark of night. And yet in stillness, found peace and victory in this expectation, this hope. Let that sink in. It's amazing how we go from a most ghastly image to a most glorious portrait. May that be on the frontlets of your eyes this morning. As we handle God's word. Behold I make all things new. Despair not my brethren. It will all pass away. And what's coming is new. That's our expectation. That's our hope. The new heaven and the earth. The new earth. The new Jerusalem. We're going to see in chapter 21. Not just in the new earth. But also in the millennial kingdom. It transcends these things. The river of life. The tree of life. These are true and faithful words. And we can rest in them. No mind on anything else but this portrait. All right, you can open your eyes. Turn, therefore, in this teaching on Revelation to Proverbs chapter 11. 
You see, by the end of this time, Lord willing, we'll get through those verses I read this morning. But during this Advent season, I think what we need to do is focus upon our expectation and our hope. Not what is in this country or what could have been in an election earlier this month, but what will be by God's Word. Not by the empty promises of politicians and false preachers and liars and people motivated by money and people who wouldn't know to tell the truth if it slapped them in the face. Our expectation, our hope. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 7. And we'll also see as we proceed down the verses here, it's going to go quite nicely with what the Lord has laid upon my heart in the coming Sundays. We're going to start with verse 7. Think of this in contrast with what I just read. What I just read is our expectation, our hope. But Proverbs 11 verse 7 says, When a wicked man dieth, his expectation shall perish, and the hope of the unjust men perishing. When a wicked man dies, my friends, his expectation dies with him. And the hope of an unjust man dies with him. The expectation and the hope of the wicked is much like the spirit of an animal. An animal has a spirit. Ecclesiastes tells us this. But the spirit of an animal is wed to its body. And therefore, when the body goes down to the earth, so does the spirit. And it dies with the beast. So your dog and your cat are not going to be in the new heaven and the new earth. It dies. There'll be dogs and cats. Lions that lay down with the lamb and ox that eat grass with the sheep. But your pet ain't going to be there. Okay? Tater ain't going to be there, guys. His spirit is attached to his body and it goes down to the earth. But the spirit of a man endures. And it goes to God for judgment. The expectation and the hope of the wicked, however, is like the spirit of the beast. It dies with him. It dies with him. Expectation and hope. I want those two watch words to be our theme this season of Advent. Expectation and hope. Expectation and hope die with the wicked. Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We don't sorrow as those who have no hope. When your expectation and hope die with you, you have no hope. The wicked have no hope. No hope. Not so with us. Our expectation and hope endures beyond our earthly life. These next few Sundays, I think there's four, including today, before the Christmas holiday. One thereafter. We'll see how things go. This Advent season. I want it to be like the days leading up to the birth of Christ. The first Advent for us as it was for them. Those in Israel living under Roman tyranny... And in Jerusalem under a king, a Roy Cooper of that day, a wicked devil, 
There were believers living in tyranny much worse than ours with expectation and hope. When Simeon is introduced toward the end of Luke 2, he is described as one who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He wasn't waiting for a new Herod. He wasn't waiting for the leadership to change in Rome. He wasn't waiting for Rome to go away. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the Messiah, his expectation and hope, irrespective of his circumstances. We're told that Anna, the prophetess, was one who had been testifying in Jerusalem. And to who was she testifying? All them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. There were those looking for redemption. Not from Rome, not from Jewish rebels that were stirring up trouble in the Galilee, but from the Messiah. Their expectation and hope was in the God of Israel, the Messiah of Israel, the consummation of all things, which includes the restoration of the nation according to God's promise. Their days of Advent were days of expectation and hope. And I want that to be our theme. You all know the birth of Christ story. We cycled through it many times. I was able to preach a series of messages on the advent of the Messiah. It was five messages some years ago. You might find those very interesting. I love to delve into the details and compare Scripture with Scripture and see what the Bible has to say about the birth of Christ versus our traditions and superstitions. I encourage you to go back and listen to those. If you go to our ministry website, full, F-U-L-L, fullproof.org, look under study helps in the main menu. And scroll down and you'll see the Advent of Messiah messages. There's five of those. You'll find those very interesting. But I don't want to repeat that stuff. It's there for you if you want to use it. Expectation and hope. My friends, there have been believers throughout all of church history who have lived in expectation and hope, not despairing in circumstances so far worse so much worse than the little tiny problems we're tasting in America today after a stolen election and COVID-19 superstition and fraud and tyranny. Our difficulties pale in comparison. So how could we not have expectation and hope when so many who have gone before and in other nations have? Truly a great cloud of witnesses. My goal this year, outside of my other study and studying the scriptures and traveling and preaching, has been to read 20 books. Not little books, but big books. Good, hearty, meat-filled books. And I'm sitting at 18. And I know I've got to get moving. So I came home, and the other night I'm like looking through my library. I want to grab something out of there. And I'm thinking something a little smaller so I can meet my goal. And uh, I ended up pulling a book off the shelf that wasn't exactly small, and it's small print. I don't even remember who gave me this book or how it came into my hands, but it's funny how God puts stuff in your path and you end up seemingly randomly choosing something and you start reading and it's exactly what God's trying to teach you. And it was a book written by a missionary named Don Cormack who spent more than 20 years in Cambodia. Cambodia is a small country sandwiched between 
in Southeast Asia between Vietnam and Laos and Thailand. And Cambodia was a war-torn country during the Vietnam War. It's, a pla- it's been a place of incredible suffering over the years, much like Bangladesh that I've had the privilege of going to. Years, years ago, I traveled across Cambodia from Vietnam alone on public transportation. I spent a few days in the capital city. I was able to walk through the killing fields. I visited a concentration camp there in Phnom Penh. And there were Christians along the way who housed me and who God used to chastise me a bit. They had some questions about some very erratic and strange behavior on my part. Passed it along and it ended up being used by God to radically change the course of my life and to get my attention about some foolishness in my life. So I'm indebted to that nation in a sense. I'm indebted to those believers, those missionaries who had the guts to recognize something ain't right and say something about it. And so I just saw this book called Live, uh, Killing Fields, Living Fields by this missionary. And I, don't know, I didn't know a whole lot about the history, but I decided to pick it up. I thought, you know, this right now in the time we're living, a good topic to read about is the persecuted church in other places and at other times. And as we read about these testimonies, I recently read again Richard, Richard Wormbrand's Tortured for Christ about his time in Romania and the terrible persecution of the church there and what God did in the end. I'd, I'd suggest you pick that up. But don't pick it up unless you want to be ashamed of your weakness as a Christian here in America. I was. Don't pick it up because people you respect suddenly might not be worthy of respect. You'll recognize the false spirit in our churches. You'll recognize the J.D. Greers and the Russell Moores and the, um, the uh, David Platts and the Al Mollers and all these Southern Baptist leaders for what they really are. For those men were right there in Romania... All the communist things, just a conspiracy theory. These people are here for our good. We need to get along. And then we're turning in believers to be tortured and crucified. Same thing happened in Cambodia. So don't pick up those stories of the persecuted church unless you want to be ashamed and convicted and unless you want to see the truth exposed about people you might otherwise respect. It's dangerous. But they're good things to read right now to find strength and to find zeal. Because guys, there are people that have had it way worse than we have. Maybe their measure of suffering was proportional to their measure of faith. And God could entrust them with it. Maybe our lack thereof is in proportion to our little faith. We can't be trusted with it. But I picked up this book written by a missionary who was on the ground. And I've only gotten, I've not even gotten halfway through in just a few days. And guys, i got to tell you, I'm ashamed and convicted. But I'm also empowered and strengthened. The example of these believers, just as it was in Romania during the communist purges, is quite unlike the example of our churches today. Quite unlike what we consider the church Today, the church in Cambodia is not quite even a hundred years old. 
The story of the church there is not even a hundred years old. I want to give you a little oversimplified rundown right now. Just an oversimplified rundown. In 1923, two missionary families were allowed to enter Cambodia. In the, I believe it was the northwest in the Badabang province. Two years later, a Bible study or a Bible school was started with five Cambodian men who had given their hearts to Christ. If you remember a post I posted about a week or so ago, it's referring to those men who happened to hear a street preacher in a market. Two years, the church in Cambodia, two years later after the missionaries went in, started with five men in a Bible study or a Bible school. Over the next 45 years, from 1925 to 1970, missionaries were kicked out. Some were allowed to return. They were kicked out, returned, kicked out, returned. There was limited fruit. A small number of believers endured in hardship and persecution under the dark, dark bondage of a Buddhist society. And make no mistakes, my friends. Buddhism is not peaceful and tranquil like the Westerner has so foolishly believed. If you've been to Ladakh, if you've labored in Ladakh like Eric and Mindy, ask them about the peaceful tranquility of Buddhism while they sat alone in a Buddhist area and lost a child. Ask them about the tranquil peace they found. No, Buddhism is dark. In fact, I respect Islam more than I do Buddhism because in Islam... Unlike the Jews of Jesus' day, they'll at least hear you before they judge you. Remember Jesus says, does your law judge a man before he hear him to the Jews? Hey, I can go and preach to Muslims and they'll hear what I have to say. They may stone me and kill me, but not without least giving me an ear. Not so with the Buddhists. They're deceptive and conniving and sniveling, just like these people in political power in our government. And they'll sneak around. They won't hear what you have to say. They won't stone you or kill you in open and send you to be with the Lord quickly. They'll cut the electricity and the water off in a Christian's house in the dead of winter. They'll carry him out to the high desert in the mountains and leave him. Wicked and evil. But these believers endure. Just a small number. Very limited fruit. I'm sure during these 45 years there were plenty of missionaries and local Christians asking Is this worth it? In 1970, the the prince of Cambodia, Sihanouk, was overthrown by a right-wing military faction. This was a pro-American faction. The Americans helped this overthrow and financed it. And the country came under control of a military government, a man named Lon Nol. And there were missionaries who were able to return. They came back, and this was not a stable situation. When the U.S. backed this overthrow, it made a mess even bigger. United States is great for something in the 20th century, particularly after World War I, making a mess worse. That's what our country does. We're not the great moral lawgiver of the world. America has blood on its hands. It has lots of blood on its hands where Cambodia is concerned, where Bangladesh is concerned, where Bosnia and Serbia are concerned, where Libya is concerned. It's got lots of blood on its hands where Vietnam is concerned. But 
a situation was made worse. Nevertheless, missionaries went back into a terribly unstable situation. And what they found in 1970 was a Cambodian church that numbered about 300 believers. So from five men in 1925 all the way to 1970, uh, 45 years later, the church had grown from five to about 300. About 300 believers. The next five years from 1970 to 1975, there was political chaos in this nation beyond anything we can imagine. Civil uprisings, civil war. There was the invasion of the North Vietnamese who used eastern Cambodia for their Ho Chi Minh Trail to ferry supplies into South Vietnam. And there was American carpet bombing of this nation. B-52s bombed Cambodia during this time. When these missionaries came back in 1970, they found three churches, three little small churches in Phnom Penh, the capital. Five years later, when the horrible communist Khmer Rouge marched into the capital and began their reign of terror, there were 30 plus churches in Phnom Penh and scores of house churches scattered across the country. So in a five-year period of complete and total chaos and civil unrest and suffering and destruction, missionaries went back, God used the work, and the churches increased in the capital from 3 to 30. In 1973, during the U.S. bombing raids along the Vietnam border, there were huge evangelistic preaching crusades in the capital. You older folks don't remember the mainstream media covering that, do you? Mm -mm. Of course not. Christmas 1973, 75,000 copies of the scriptures and gospel booklets were distributed in Phnom Penh, the capital, by Christians. Christmas 1974, things are getting worse and worse. The Khmer Rouge is is, is, is circling the capital and the military government is going to fall come April of 1975. The U.S. has no stomach for the matters of Southeast Asia anymore. Christmas 1974, 15,000 people gathered in Olympic Stadium in Phnom Penh to hear the Word of God preached. On New Year's Day 1974, just across the Mekong River was artillery shells and smoke and fighting. The Cambodian army and the Khmer Rouge fighting. And the Khmer Rouge suddenly, slowly creeping toward the capital. But on the capital side of the river, New Year's Day 1974, there was a huge baptism service on the banks of the Mekong River. 90% of those participating in in that baptism service, most of the new believers from that day would shortly be translated to glory by the ensuing slaughter. By April 17, 1975, the day the Khmer Rouge marched into the capital city, there were more than 10,000 believers in Cambodia. Again, the Western media didn't cover any of this. They didn't cover the atrocities of the Khmer Rouge, not instigated by peasants and uneducated backward farmers 
but by Western educated college graduates who came back home from Paris to institute the same communism and the same socialism that that wicked devil from the pit of hell Joe Biden is boasting about today. But the media didn't cover it. Oh, those are just conspiracy theories. There's no genocide in Cambodia. Nothing has changed. Oh, there's no election fraud. I mean, yeah, you can see all this stuff with your eyes, but oh, it's just a conspiracy theory. Nothing's ever changed. 1975 to 1979 was called the Reign of Terror in Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. There are people in our Congress that are the exact same spirit as Pol Pot. During this four-year period, 30% of Cambodia's population was slaughtered by their own people. 90% of the Cambodian church perished. And you ask yourself, where was God? 1925, five believers. 1970, about 300. 1975, more than 10,000 believers. 1990, only about 1,000. 10,000 to 1,000. 2003, 100,000 believers in Cambodia. Cambodian believers. Now that's a story. That's a story of victory. That's a story of expectation and hope. And that's a story that only a born-again believer with an expectation and hope in Messiah can appreciate. The expectation of the Khmer Rouge never came to pass. The sad thing about the Cambodian situation, it's just like Bangladesh, is the savior of the people from the Khmer Rouge wasn't the United States. They were pleading for help. We ignored it. Gerald Ford didn't want any, uh, uh, anything to do with it. Once Nixon resigned, we ignored it. So the saviors who rescued the people and the Christians from this terror ended up being the North Vietnamese communist. Came in there and overthrew the Khmer Rouge. So thanks to communism in Cambodia, a little less horrendous than what was there, the church was able to grow again. Interesting. But the expectation of the Khmer Rouge, of their utopia of their communist, socialist utopia, never came to fruition. It perished with that regime in 1979. So it will be with those same dreams here in America. Everything they're pushing on us will perish when they perish. And perish they will. That old usurper who calls himself a president-elect already has a foot in the grave, and yet he fears not God. Everything he hopes for will perish. And everything that wicked cadre of evil devils and banshees behind him is pushing will perish with them. But not so for the righteous. Not so for the true church. You know what the greatest revenge that the Jewish people had against the Nazis? What, you know what that, the greatest revenge was? It wasn't victory. You know what the greatest revenge the Jews had against the Nazis? Grandchildren. That was the greatest revenge. Grandchildren. Grandchildren who would populate the modern state of Israel in the land that God gave to their fathers. Great revenge. You know what the greatest revenge of the Cambodian believer was against the Khmer Rouge? 
In 2003, the Khmer Rouge was long gone, but there were 100,000 believers of Cambodian ethnicity, the largest there's ever been in the history of the world. That, my friends, is sweet revenge. And we don't have to lift a finger to execute it. The great revenger himself does. The expectations of the Khmer Rouge perished with... Guys, I'm only halfway through the book. And it's just an amazing story. There's some things that stood out to me in what I've read so far. In 1970, the situation in Cambodia when the military, backed, uh, when the military faction backed by the U.S. overthrew the prince was horribly unstable, not safe, unpredictable, and yet there were missionaries, Western missionaries, who went back into the country. As soon as there was an opportunity, they went back. Now today, compare that with Christians who are fleeing their churches over a virus that has less than a 1% mortality rate. There's a sign for a Methodist church out near my home that says only a certain amount of people are allowed in church. The rest will have to stand outside, face mask and social distancing required. Now compare those Christians and the missionaries that have run from their fields over COVID-19 to come home. Some of them had to. We were home when it broke out. We can't get back into Peru or couldn't at the time or Nepal. So I don't, I'm not attacking individual situations. But in general, compare that with missionaries today who flee and come home in the face of COVID-19. In 1970s, there were those going into civil war to reach a people they loved and God had laid upon their hearts. There were Cambodian church leaders who knew when the Khmer Rouge, Rouge took the capital that they would perish. Some of them, the well-known leaders, had contacts and had connections whereby they could have left the country, whereby they could have escaped, but they chose to stay with their people and they perished. Compare that with pastors today. When they get an opportunity to go to another church that has a little bit better salary, a little bit better compensation package and housing allowance, they'll just forget about the people they've discipled and go up that ladder. All the way up until April 17th, the day before, even the day of when the Khmer Rouge came into the capital, the believers there in Phnom Penh we're still meeting and planning for the future. There was a missions conference going on at the time the city was overrun whereby these believers were preparing for the future to serve the Lord in Cambodia. Carry on, carrying on, planning for the future and service to the Lord to the very end. And look at us today, just sitting. Us, I'm speaking in the first person, just sitting, afraid, hiding. God forbid somebody gives us a dirty look in a store because we don't have a diaper on our face. But Christians planning service to the Lord to the very end. Another thing that stood out to me in reading these testimonies of the killing fields, I've been to the killing fields. You can, when I was there, and I guess it would have been 2000, you could still walk these rice paddy fields and see white pieces of bone sticking up out of the ground. They would haul civilians out there, and when the bullets got short, they would talk about uh, uh, swinging a hammer. Oh, they're, they're off to swing a hammer down south because there was a little 
symbol on the butts of the rifles that resembled a hammer, and they they'd hit you with the with the bottom of that muzzle. I mean that stock, and just hit you over the head and kill you. The 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 bottom of the muzzle. Something about a hammer down south. But they just take you up to the these. Most of them were teenagers that served with the Khmer Rouge. They just take Christians and non-Christians alike up to the edge of these pits and just smack them over the back of the head in such a way that it killed them and threw their bodies in a mass grave. There's a huge Buddhist memorial there at the Killing Fields today that's just full of human skulls that have been uh, excavated. I've been to the Tool Slang concentration camp where political prisoners were tortured in ways that would make even some of the Nazi concentration camps look like a patty cakes in the playground. The stench of death all those years later still hung over that place. So I can appreciate these things. And when I think about them, I can only say we are so weak. Our faith is so small. We, first person, are so weak. And our faith is so small. But it need not be so, my friends, if our focus will be on our expectation and our hope. Because unlike the expectation and the hope of the wicked, it will not perish with us. It's amazing how many Christians today are professing Christians in light of COVID-19 are afraid to go to heaven. If you're afraid to go to heaven, then you've got a spiritual problem and you need to get born again, in my opinion. On Tuesday, as we made our way home, I didn't want to get home super late. We could have gotten home by 2 o'clock in the morning. I didn't like to do that. Eric and Bethany and I had the privilege of traveling 14,000 miles the day after Labor Day until this week. And on Tuesday, we camped on a cold night and decided to do one last hike before we came home. We climbed up Standing Indian Mountain there in Western North Carolina. It's one of the southernmost 5,000-foot peaks in the Appalachians. And as we sat up there, we just prayed about the trip, people that God brought to mind along the journey we could pray for. And Bethany read for us Hebrews chapter 11 up there. And as she read, I thought about how Abraham sojourned by faith, but was never able to settle down in the land God had given him. He lived in a tent and moved around all the days of his life. And guess what? So did Isaac. And so did Jacob, heirs of the same promise. They died in faith. But their expectation and their hope did not die with them. In fact, turn to Hebrews 11. Since I was in college, this has been one of my favorite passages to meditate upon while out for a hike. I don't know why. It just is. Hebrews 11 verse 10 speaks of Abraham who sojourned as a pilgrim. For he looked for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. He wasn't looking for an earthly city, an earthly country. He's looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. Verses 13 through 16, these all, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the faith, died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed 
that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Not vagabonds and fugitives. Strangers and pilgrims. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country. That is a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. Their expectation did not die with them. Their hope did not die with them. They saw it afar off. Just as we can see what I read to you this morning afar off. And yet they embraced that, these truths. They confessed them. That they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That is precisely why it is so important for us to follow executive order there in chapter 10, verse 25 from the king to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together in dark days. All of Roy Cooper's unconstitutional, legally invalid, and illegitimate Executive orders are subjected to the executive orders of our king. And our king gave us an executive order to remind us of the expectation and hope that won't perish with us. And that's the assembling of ourselves together. What a privilege it is to assemble together. And we don't have to do it secretly like those Cambodian believers did. We can do it openly. And we're doing it openly. And I say, Catawba County Sheriff, come on. You're not coming in without a warrant. I say, Roy Cooper, come join us. Join us online. See what a person's smile looks like. You haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, you have because you don't wear a mask behind closed doors. You're a lying hypocrite. You gathered with your people. I guarantee it. And you drank and you partied. Just like all these hypocrites. Liars. Rules for thee, but not for me. But God sees and their expectation will perish with them. My friends, we are strangers and pilgrims in this wicked country. As were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in their land. And as all those Cambodian believers from 1925 to 1975. Strangers and pilgrims. We have that in common. Do we declare plainly in these days that we seek a country? Do we declare plainly by the things we say and do that we seek a country as Abraham did? Are we declaring plainly that we seek an expectation and a hope by how we are living today in this COVID-19 BS, whether it's real or not? Even if it's real. What these believers faced was 10,000 times worse. They didn't run and hide. They weren't scared to death. They wouldn't turn their backs on people on a hiking trail when you speak to them or refuse to shake hands or refuse to extend the right hand of fellowship. No way. Whether COVID-19 is as real as they say or not, is it, is, it, is, is, what's the word I'm looking for? Irrelevant if we seek plainly a country because God has not given us to a spirit of fear. My friends, I've had the great privilege since this whole COVID-19 thing broke out of traveling nearly 25,000 miles in this country. I think it was 34 states 
During our missionary journey back in March, Eric and I, and during this journey we just finished with Bethany, 34 states, more than 25,000 miles. We've traveled through some hot spots. We've shaken hands and hugged homeless people, prayed over people, complete strangers. We've visited Christians. We've shaken hands. We've hugged. We've ate at tables. Not one single, single second since I heard about COVID-19 have I put a diaper on my face. Not one second have we gone out of our way to social distance or to follow any CDC guideline any more than the common sense hygiene that I learned living in the third world to prevent germs. All we've done is common sense stuff that I was raised to do. And I'm just telling you, not one second have I, nor Eric, nor Bethany, the ones that we've traveled together, not one second have we been ill beyond anything that a little rest and fluids doesn't take care of. Now, that's God's grace. That's God's grace, but it also reveals that you're being lied to and your fear is not rooted in reality. We as Christians ought to be able to recognize truth from error. And you know what I'm sick and tired of? I'm sick and tired of being told to wear a mask to love my neighbor. Now, I expect the world to say stupid stuff like that. The Khmer Rouge said all kinds of stupid things. But I don't expect it from Christians. And I'll tell you what kind of Christians I don't expect it from and I don't appreciate it from. Two types. The ones that will tell you to love your neighbor by wearing a mask, but they've never loved their neighbor enough to share the gospel. Nor have they ever loved their unborn neighbor enough, the most vulnerable amongst us, to ever lift a finger or even a whisper against the Holocaust that is abortion in this country. If you haven't lifted a voice in loving these neighbors, don't talk to me about loving your neighbor. Now, if you have, hey, we'll talk about it. If you want to wear a mask and you're convicted to do that by the Lord, then follow your conscience. Don't judge me, I won't judge you. But the hypocrisy is unbelievable. Are we strangers and pilgrims or are we caught up fretting over Joe Biden and Roy Cooper and trying to fix a country that can't be fixed, my friends. Or make a corrupt one somehow great again. Hoping that a president who isn't even saved can somehow do it. How weak are we when surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses Hebrews talks about? And guess who's in that great cloud? These believers. Planning for the future in service to Christ up to the very end. Baptized one day, slaughter the next. That's our great kind of witnesses. Back in 1901, September 3rd, a Vice President Teddy Roosevelt gave a speech at the Minnesota State Fair. I love using this when I preach on the streets. And it was his famous walk softly and carry a big stick speech. Now, he wasn't president when he said that. He was vice president. But three days later, President McKinley would be assassinated. And Roosevelt would become the youngest president in the history of our country. I think I wrote something about this back on June 1st I'd like to read to you this morning that kind of highlights the situation we're living in today in America and how we, unlike our society, need to be living with expectation and hope. And that demands something of us. One rule for peaceful lockdown protesters... And another rule for Black Lives Matter and Antifa. Since then, one rule for government officials, like Governor Jailhead in California and Roy Cooper and 
that fool Fauci. One rule for them and one rule and another for us, right? Government and law enforcement in America at all levels is rotten to the core. And why are these rotten? Because people on every side, both left and right politically, are rotten to the core in this wicked country. Psalm 12, 8 says, The wicked walk on every side when the vilest of men are exalted. And you can't find a more vile man to sit in the office of the presidency in the history of this whole country than Joe Biden. There's not been a more vile man. It's more vile than Obama. Vile. And he sits in power not because he's put himself there, but because the wicked walk on every side. That sums it up, folks. Not racism, not police brutality, not COVID-19, not lockdowns, not liberals, not conservatives, not Democrats, not Republicans. This nation has a spiritual problem. And it is rotten to the core. Four days after... President, uh, four days after Roosevelt said these words back in 1901, President McKinley was assassinated. This is what Roosevelt said at this Minnesota State Fair. September of 1901, Vice President Teddy Roosevelt gave a speech just outside of Minneapolis of all places. In this speech, he was very clear. No prosperity and no glory can save a nation that is rotten at heart. Let that sink in. No prosperity, no glory can save a nation that is rotten at heart. That sums it up. Our spiritual problem. Four days later, President McKinley was assassinated, proving Roosevelt's point. And Teddy Roosevelt, as I said, now I'm kind of reading and commenting. You see, I'm repeating myself. I'm sorry. I should just read what's here. And Teddy Roosevelt became the youngest man ever at that time to serve as the President of the United States. I believe Obama might have been younger. In this same speech, he said something else which is often divorced from its original context. The original context was the rottenness of the nation's spiritual state. He said because, you know, in other words, because prosperity and glory cannot save a nation with a huge spiritual problem, that's the context, the righteous must, what you've all heard, walk softly and carry a big stick. My friends, as Bible-believing Christians and law-abiding citizens who fear God and love this country, I declare, as one of these, I declare without apology that America's rotten to the core. From the White House to the church house. I'll walk softly in these times because my expectation and hope isn't this country. But I will carry a big stick. And don't think I won't use it in defense of others, for what that is what the Lord requires of those whom He has kept safe and secure. Consider Proverbs 24, 11, and 12. If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, does he not know it? And shall he not render to every man according to his works? If you see those delivered to death, and you have the means to, 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 to deliver them from that death, and you don't do anything, God sees it, and He remembers that He kept you safe, and you did nothing. What Roosevelt and the writer of Proverbs refer to is passive action. That's not vengeance. Vengeance is active passion. 
What the writer of Proverbs and Roosevelt are talking about is passive action, not active passion, which belongs only to the Lord. Vengeance belongs only to the Lord. Passive, passive action, however, is ready, willing, and defensive. Vengeance, apart from the Lord, is offensive and goes looking for trouble. Sadly, it's, all, it's not always possible to live peaceably with all men, Romans 12, 18. Therefore, walking softly much preferred, but swinging a big stick if I must. Why are you preaching so hard this morning, you might ask, preacher? Because I'm carrying a big stick. And swinging that stick starts with speaking the truth that we've been so afraid to say for so long. The last thing the church in America needs right now is mealy-mouthed Christians and preachers who won't speak the truth. We need to amp up the hellfire and brimstone gospel preaching, not just behind the pulpit, not just on social media, but on the public street corner. That's what we need to do. That's how we walk softly and carry a big stick. Because this nation is rotten to the core. Our recent election, whether it was stolen or legit, even if it was legit, which we all know it wasn't, proves exactly what Roosevelt said. This nation is rotten. Because if the people legitimately did elect these devils, we are rotten. If it was stolen from us, we're rotten. Our election reminds me of those ones I used to have in Iraq. You know the free and fair elections in Iraq when Saddam Hussein would get 90% of the vote? You remember those? Yeah, yeah that's, that's what our country is. Christians, if they don't fix this, if they don't expose this, then my advice to you come two years from now, never vote in another election again. I'm sick of being taken for granted by these rat bum line Republicans. And I'm sick of being taken for granted for it. If we know it's a circus and a charade and we know the machines are going to give them the result they want, then let's don't participate anymore. Because we have another expectation, another hope, and it's not here. And it won't die with us. As Christians, we have to divorce our expectations from our country, my friends. Just like those Cambodian believers had to. We have to let our hope be rooted in a better country whose builder and maker is God. Not in Donald Trump, not in Republicans. And for crying out loud, I'm sick and tired of hearing about the next elections, the most important in all of history. Some stupid runoff elections in Georgia. It's not my state. I don't care anything about it. They're going to steal it anyway. Certainly not. Certainly don't put your hope in that old senile devil, Joe Biden, who lectures us from the palms. And what the palmist has to say. It's funny to me, the so-called Christians who laughed and made fun of Donald Trump when he said two Corinthians don't have anything to say about palmist. It's funny, I, I know a faithful pastor that's preached on the streets that's been a faithful evangelist for many, many years in South Dakota. And he always referred to first and, uh, one and two Corinthians, one and two Thessalonians, long before Donald Trump came around. Let me just go on record. Joe Biden is an usurper. We're not under his authority. He's an usurper. He's not my enemy. We're to love our enemies. He's an enemy of the Lord. What does Psalm 139 say about the enemies of the Lord? Guys, we need to learn to distinguish our enemies, those we come in contact with in our personal life, versus the enemies of the Lord who 
go about to destroy God's church, to destroy Israel, to get rid of the Bible, and to promote everything that God hates. Psalm 39. Let's see. uh, Not 39. 139. um, Verses 20. 1 and 22. The psalmist says, Do I not hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That was David, a man after God's own heart. A sinner, but a humble sinner. When he was approached and told, Thou art the man, he didn't make excuses like Saul. Did you write? I've sinned. He talks about the enemies of the Lord and how he hates them with perfect hatred. Friends, perfect hatred is not emotional hatred. It's not man-centered hatred that's rooted in our feelings, our emotions, and in our pride. Perfect hatred is the hatred of God that's rooted in righteousness and His Word. And on the authority of God's Word and what God's Word stands for, I hate that usurper in the White House with perfect hatred. And if he won't repent, may God slay him before the sun goes down tonight. If he won't be converted, may God slay him. May God slay him. No, forget him. Forget that mook, that rat bum, that Roy Cooper. Forget them. Forget that schmuck. Tony Fauci, that lying devil, that sniveller who wouldn't dare during the 1980s AIDS crisis when he was in the same position he's in now, he wouldn't dare people, dare uh, uh, recommend that people abstain from sodomy and homosexual sex to prevent the spread of AIDS. He wouldn't dare say they need to close the bathhouses in San Francisco. And he wouldn't dare even recommend that people abstain from sex outside of marriage to stop the AIDS epidemic. All he said is take AZT, take AZT. That rat, bum, lying, mook, that wicked devil from the pit of hell doesn't care anything about your health. And he didn't care an ounce about the health of the people that perished with AIDS in the 1980s. He's a liar, he's a mook, he's a devil. Period. Forget him. Forget these men that don't want us to be assembling like this, like we are today in obedience to the Lord. Forget them. We aren't looking to them. We aren't looking to Republicans who have lied and cowered before us time and time again, who take us Christians for granted no more. What should we be looking for? What is to be our expectation that will not die with us? I want these next few Sundays... This Advent season to be a time to meditate upon these questions. Not just during Sunday service, but as you seek the Lord throughout the week and as you live in these trying times. And I want to answer them by the Scriptures. We've got to answer them by the Scriptures. I'm going to start by focusing on the first verse of chapter 21 next week, the new heaven and the new earth. Then I want to go from there. We're going to proceed down... Proverbs 11, and I want to talk about the imminency of Christ's return and how that imminency should govern our lives. 
There are things before the new heaven and the new earth that we can rejoice about. One of them is Christ coming for His church. I've taught in here on the rapture before, the pre-tribulation rapture of the saints, which I believe is biblical. We've talked about the New Testament passages and looked at them in context and compared Scripture with Scripture. But I want to talk to you about the pre-trib rapture as revealed in the Old Testament. Probably something you've never heard before. Oh, it's there. It's there. I want you to find comfort and expectation in that. With regard to the specific future of America, America's future is written, it's written down. What we're seeing today is specific prophecy coming to pass for America right here, right there in Isaiah. We're going to talk about it. A nation scattered and peeled, terrible from their beginning. That's us. But its destruction won't come without a great present offered up to the Lord. Think about that. Then I want to finish. We may do this after the, the holiday. Verses 2 through 5. Let's look at it. Let's break it down exegetically. Revelation 21, a most beautiful declaration of our expectation. I want to take these things in context. You know, where people get in trouble with the book of Revelation is they don't use the outline that Jesus gave us for Revelation. We've talked about this before. The theme verse is chapter 1, verse 19. Now, if we just let use Jesus' outline, we wouldn't get in trouble with whether something's literal or symbolic or the church or Israel, wouldn't get in trouble. John told, Jesus told John to write down three things. Write down the things you have already seen. What John saw in the first chapter, the resurrected Christ as he stands at, in the candlesticks, the head of the church, the things which are, he's to write down. That's chapters 2 and 3, the church age, the letters to the seven churches, literal churches in John's day, types of churches that have existed all throughout church history, and an amazing prophetic tapestry that gives us a synopsis of church history from the apostolic church to the Laodicean church of today. We talked about all that, and guys, we would naturally have a clearer picture today in the Laodicean church period after history has run its course than the reformers or the early Christians would have. We can look back and see this is prophecy. The church age ending with the Laodicean church. And then he was to write down the things which shall be. Chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 22, verse 5. What shall be hereafter? Hereafter what? After the things which are. The church age. What happens, what's the first thing that happens in the hereafter? A door opens in heaven. John hears a voice like a trumpet come up. And he's raptured up into heaven. Then we have the... The, uh, the judgments, the tribulation, the second coming, the millennium, the great white throne, and here, chapter 21. We're still in the things which shall be hereafter. 21 verse 8 is interesting. In these times, those cast into the lake of fire, who are the first ones cast in? The murderers? The homosexuals? Cowards. A lot of cowards in the church today. And then chapter 22, verse 6 to the end of the book is an epilogue where John is transported back to the present time and Christ has some concluding words that John is to testify, verse 16, in the churches. Revelation was for us in the churches, specifically in dark days, to harness our expectation that we might focus upon it. So that's... The context of where we are as we begin chapter 21, can't forget that theme verse. 
Daniel was written to the Jews. Revelation is written to the churches for the same, detailing the same things Daniel saw. And yet it's never preached in the churches. The letters to the churches are never preached. You'd think we'd want to pay attention. Why are, they, why are these things given to us? That we might embrace our expectation that will not die with us. Just like it hasn't died going all the way back to those early Christians. Even Paul who thought Christ would come in his lifetime and he didn't. His expectation did not perish. I know it's a little long but I want to conclude with this. Because there's a lot of stuff floating around out there. There's a lot of reactionary teaching going on right now. Because of the COVID-19 and the vaccine and the elections. Guys, we have to let the scripture be our God as we try to interpret what's happening today. Not Alex Jones, but the Scripture. Not right-wing talk radio, but the Scripture. They must be our guide as we try to discern and decipher present circumstances. And we've got to be careful about emotional reactions. Let me make something abundantly clear this morning. Based on the scriptures, we are not in the tribulation. It has not begun. We're not living in the tribulation. It hasn't started. Let me, let me be clear about something else. The COVID-19 vaccine is not the mark of the beast. It's not. You know, the mark of the beast, we talked about it in here. The scriptures are very plain. It's both in and on the right hand or the forehead. It's an implant that's visible on the surface. It's right there what the scriptures say. You don't inject a vaccine into the bony part of the hand or the skull. You just don't. Let me make something else abundantly clear based upon the scriptures. Just because Christians of the past and in other places like Cambodia have suffered terribly... It doesn't mean that we, the church, are doomed to suffer the tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble. The tribulation has two purposes, as we've said here before. Jesus confirms it. Daniel confirms it. Jeremiah confirms it. John confirms it. To wake up the nation of Israel so that they'll finally realize they made a terrible mistake about the Messiah. And second, to judge the Gentile nations, for God to judge them with His wrath. Those are the purposes. Scriptures are clear. Do not make the mistake of confusing what you see today, the wrath of wicked men and the devil, with the wrath of God. Don't confuse those things. We may suffer in the coming days. We may suffer at the hands of wicked men and the devil. We should expect no less considering those that have gone before. But my friends, there is a rapture coming. I pray we'll live to see it. If we don't live to see it, we which are dead will come up out of the ground and join those that remain to go up and be with the Lord in the air. We may suffer. I've heard people accuse those that believe in a pre-trib rapture of just thinking we can just lay back and wait and we're not going to have to suffer. And I don't, I, I've never known anybody that believes that. Oh, we're going to suffer. Some of us already have. 
But don't confuse the wrath of men and the devil with the wrath of God. The tribulation is the wrath of God. There's a rapture coming. We need to be ready. Whether it comes tomorrow or years from now after this country is doomed and finished. When does the tribulation begin? Not with COVID-19. Daniel 9.27, the prophecy of Daniel 70 weeks is very clear. The last week of Daniel's 70-week prophecy begins when the Antichrist confirms a covenant with the people of Israel. And in the middle of that seven years, he's going to break it. That's when the tribulation begins. That's what the scriptures say. In Revelation, it begins when Christ unleashes the Antichrist, opens the seals, the first seal. Who sets the Antichrist loose? Not the devil. Not himself. Jesus sets him loose. Remember Revelation 6, 1 and 2, the white horse rider, the imposter? Jesus sets him loose. That doesn't mean his spirit isn't around. His spirit's everywhere. Why do we study the person of Antichrist? So we can recognize his spirit. And his spirit is all over this COVID-19 garbage. All over it. It's all over our elections. We can know it because we know him as revealed in the scriptures, a liar. Isaiah 10, 5, God calls Antichrist the rod of my anger against both Israel and the nations. Where is the church when the first seal is opened in Revelation? Where is the church? Turn to Revelation 5 and I'll end with this. Christ is given the, the seal, the earth's title deed. He alone is worthy to open it. Chapter 6, verse 1, he opens the first seal. The white horse rider, the imposter, calling for peace, comes forward. And Daniel, he signs a peace treaty. <clears throat> In this scene, however, where's the church? Revelation 5, 9, and 10. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, the first seal letting loose Antichrist on the world, the person. For thou wast slain and has redeemed us to God. Who are the us? By thy blood out of every kindred, every tongue, every people, every nation, both the United States and Cambodia. Thou hast redeemed us. There's a great throng of people in the throne room who have been redeemed from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Thou hast redeemed us and has made us unto our gods, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. That's where the church is. It's not mentioned again until the end of the book. Mentioned plenty of times up through chapter three, end of chapter 3 and then John's rapture to heaven. We see it in chapter 5, but not mentioned again. So let's let the Scriptures guide us. Let's don't get paranoid. These are terrible days. The spirit of Antichrist is at work. A lot of this stuff is a test run, but the vaccine's not the mark of the beast and we're not in the tribulation. There's a rapture coming and we need to be ready, whether it's tomorrow or years from now, whether we suffer like the Cambodian church or not. Our expectation is the same and it won't die with us. Two things I want to comment on briefly. Before I end, the vaccine that's coming, the COVID-19 vaccine. I haven't ever taken a flu shot in my life. 
I haven't been sick with the flu since 2009. I've taken vaccines that I would not have taken if my family and I lived here in America. There are vaccines that we gave to our children because we were living in the third world and there are things that are, are a risk there like hepatitis A, typhoid fever, tetanus that aren't such a risk here. Um, the vaccine that's coming is going to be a conscience issue for believers. It's going to have to be something that you weigh. Just as many Cambodian Christians had to weigh a lot of things in their lives. Guys, what happens? God's called me to missions. I love South Asia. I miss it terribly. I miss the persecuted church in Nepal and Cambodia. I miss laboring for the Lord in South America. What happens when I can't travel to these countries unless I can show a certificate to get on a plane that I've had a vaccine? I'm going to have to weigh that. I'm going to have to weigh it. It's going to be a hard issue. Maybe I can get a counterfeit certificate. I got a counterfeit certificate to get into Russia one time. I had to get a vaccine to go to Bolivia once. They wouldn't let me in unless I could show proof of having a yellow fever shot that I didn't think I needed. It's going to be a conscience issue that you're going to have to seek the Lord on. And there will be Christians who come to a different conclusion. And maybe their motive is to be able to keep traveling and keep going to these lands to preach the gospel. Just like some of those Cambodians kept meeting and kept planning for the future to be faithful. I don't know. It's not the mark of the beast. There is something evil afoot. There's something wicked afoot. We're going to have to seek the Lord. It's going to be a conscience issue. And the Bible says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Martin Luther said it's not wise and it's not safe to go against your conscience. So keep those things in mind. There will be believers with weaker consciences, just like there was concerning meat and idols. Let's remember those things. And then when it comes to the mask, it's a conscience issue, guys, we got away. I don't wear a mask. I don't wear it. There are believers who do. Some have to because it, they'll lose their job. Is it something worth losing your job over? It's a conscience issue. You've got to weigh that. You've got to seek the Lord on that. For some, yes. For others, no. There are believers that do it when they go in the stores, and their conscience is clean. So be it. Don't go against your conscience. It's not wise. It's not safe. Seek the Lord. I don't wear a mask. The day may come when I've got to do something. It's a conscience issue. It's not the mark of the beast. So we need to seek the Lord on these things. If God has convicted you to take a stand, take that stand. Not because you're more moral, but because maybe the stand you're taking is going to encourage other believers in other areas to take a stand. That's what we need in this country. And when our church is so weak, we've got to take a stand like those Cambodian believers, even if we die for it. So be thinking about these things. Let's show grace to fellow believers. Now, we know the believers that go around with the hypocritical, you're not loving your neighbor. I'm not talking about that type. I don't care what they say. I'm talking about believers that are genuine, that share the gospel. I know some. In fact, I was so encouraged on our trip. A friend of mine invited me to his church. He wanted me to speak to, he taught the, the kids during Sunday school. And, you know, I've said some things. I, I think the drive-up services are kind of ridiculous. Um, I don't like that stuff. But there are believers that have been doing it. And God kind of convicted me because I went to a drive-up service and we met inside with the kids afterward. But the pastor came up to me in the parking lot when I arrived. And he had a mask on. In my mind, I thought this is ridiculous. And yet he proceeded to introduce himself, to go about thanking me for coming this morning 
and just was real excited about what little he had been told from my friend about our ministry. And he asked questions. He was interested. And he said, will you please come and encourage our folks with something this morning? Will you just come up and stand up here on the porch and just share something? I think our folks would love it. So I went up there and preached for a few minutes to the people in their cars. They were beeping the horns. I guess that's amen when a drive-in service. I think the head pastor had some health issues, and he was inside. He was sick, and he heard it. And he told this man that talked to me to just express a real appreciation for coming. This man that came up to us in the mask, we went out to lunch together, and we had a great time of fellowship together. And I was in the presence of a genuine brother who loved the Lord and who didn't judge me without a mask, and I didn't judge him. It was an incredible time. I know a lot of Christians that won't wear a mask, but God forbid they don't, give, they don't care anything about who you are, what you're doing, wouldn't ask you one question about it. So that kind of, the Lord used that in my life. I'm thankful for that man. And we just need to seek the Lord. Let's don't confuse blunt, unalterable truth our expectation and our hope with conscience issues. If you're, if you're taking a stand, take that stand. Don't stop. Don't stop. Don't go against your conscience. I'm not wearing a mask at this point in time. I'm just not doing it. I have to go get my tag renewed tomorrow for my vehicle. It expires. I don't know if they're going to let me in there or not. I don't know if I'm going to get my tag renewed, but I'm going to take a stand politely, but I'm going to take a stand. At this point, I'm not taking a vaccine. But God's called me. He called me to missions long before COVID-19 ever came on the scene. So I'll need wisdom when that day comes and I want to go back to these lands that I love so much. Our expectation and our hope doesn't die with us as it does with the wicked. Be encouraged in that. On our way home, we had a long drive from Austin, Texas, where I met up with a brother, and we went and preached on the campus of the University of Texas. And we were trying to get to Jackson, Mississippi, to fellowship with some folks for a couple of days. And on our way, I pulled off the highway in a little town in Texas called Garden Valley. There's a cemetery there. It's unheralded, not well-known, just a small cemetery off, the, off a rural highway in the piney woods of Texas. And there's a man buried there with his two children. There's a grave there. It says, gone to be with Jesus. And underneath that tombstone are three people. Keith Green uh, and his two children, Josiah David and Bethany Grace. Our Bethany Grace was named after the Bethany Grace that perished. Keith Green was that incredible preacher who wrote all that great music in the late 70s and early 80s, back when music was a ministry. Some of his last preaching, just a short time before he was killed, is some of the best. If you've, ever not, if you've never heard his five, I think it's four or five part series on what's wrong with the modern gospel, you can find it on YouTube. Go listen to those messages in 1982. Incredible. We've used them in our summer team Yeshua trainings. He, didn't, he died not long after that. Missionary family was visiting them there on their property. They had a small plane. Keith's ministry had a small plane. He wanted to take them up for a ride. He quickly gathered his things, took his two young, uh, oldest children, said goodbye to his wife who was pregnant. Last thing he said to her is, if I don't come back, raise those other children to be godly. They went off in the plane. It went up and it crashed to the ground. Keith Green's two children and then a whole family of missionaries died that day. You might ask the Lord why. Why, Lord? Why, why all those new baptized believers in the Mekong River were dead a week later? 
Why were those church leaders killed? 90% of the Christians in Cambodia. Their expectation didn't die with them. So I want to take Bethany back there because when she was a small infant, I stopped at that grave and took a picture with her at that gravestone. I thought it would be cool to go back. She's 16 now, a, a godly young woman who loves the Lord and loves telling others about him. Beautiful too. But I was encouraged because I went to that cemetery to see Keith Green's grave. And we were kind of looking for it. And I really had to go to the restroom. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm going to get off the cemetery. I'm going to go off in the woods to uh, go to the restroom. So I, I was able to wield open this gate and walk off into some woods because there was no bathroom around. And I came back in, and as I was coming back in and walking back to that grave site, I noticed right behind him was another grave. It was that old preacher Leonard Ravenhill. I had no idea he was buried in that cemetery right behind Keith Green. He died in 1994. And then right on the other side of Keith's grave was another grave, a lady named Helen Sosnovsky Steiner, a daughter of Abraham, who died in 1990. And on that grave it said, Yeshua HaMashiach. Isaiah 53, John 3.16. Guys, Keith Green's hope, Leonard Ravenhill's hope that he preached so much about, that daughter of Abraham's hope did not perish with them. And one day it will be realized, theirs but not without ours, together. Praise God for that. Our expectation and our hope endures beyond our circumstances and our lives. Just like Simeon and Anna and those waiting for consolation in Jerusalem. That's what we're going to focus on this Advent season. Thanks for listening today. I know it's a little late, but hey, it's not 1 o'clock yet. Uh, it's not 1 o'clock. I think Matthew still holds the record. It's been some good preaching the last few weeks from Philemon. We were blessed on the road to tune in. Um, if Matthew's preaching didn't turn you off and make you run for the hills, I don't think mine will. So praise God for that. And uh, let's, let's go ahead and pray over the meal and we're, we'll, we'll call it a day. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for the hope and expectation. Those things you have prepared for those that love you, Lord, we can't comprehend. Eyes not seen, ears not heard. But your Spirit has revealed them to us, Lord, in the Scriptures. And that hope and that expectation does not perish with us as, it, as the hope of the wicked does. Lord, thank you for that convicting testimony of the work you did in Cambodia, Lord. A people not called by your name and yet called to your name. Lord, that's you doing exactly what you told Israel would do. You'd go to a foreign nation with a stammering tongue and they would believe. Lord, I'm convicted, I'm ashamed of our weakness in the face of this cloud of witnesses, Father. Strengthen us today. Help us to rest in our expectation and hope. Our rest is a weapon against man's obsessions to control things. As one, uh, one singer-songwriter wrote, look at the line of make-believe kings and the Lord of the flies wants you to kiss his reign. Our rest is a weapon. And in resting, we can resist. We can resist, Lord. Why do good men become part of the regime? They don't believe in resistance. Lord, help us to resist. Passive action, not active passion of the wicked.
Help us to preach your gospel, to live as if we believe the things we say, and to stick together, Lord, to suffer together, to rejoice together, to prosper together, and to expect and to hope together. As we go out into this coming week, we pray you would use us to strengthen other brethren, to be strengthened by them, to share with the lost, to take a stand, to be faithful to our conscience, and uh, to come again together. Bless the food you've provided this morning. May it be strength for our body as your word has been for our souls and our spirits. Thank you for Jesus Christ who came once and is coming again. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.